Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York U.S. Senator Charles Schumer was in Albany this week. Below the marquee at the Palace Theater, the Democrat promoted bipartisan legislation that would give the crippled arts economy a lifeline during the pandemic. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. Albany Symphony Orchestra music director David Allen Miller says the arts community is hurting after months of COVID-19 closures. I went down to New York City last Tuesday evening for the first time in almost six months. And as soon as I arrived, it hit me. I certainly had known that the theaters and Lincoln Center and all the museums were shut down. But what I hadn't fully appreciated was that the parking lots in Midtown would be empty and all of those parking attendants gone or furloughed. The streets were empty, hotels absolutely empty, so many restaurants and cafes, if they were still open, empty or half empty. If you ever want to see a graphic picture of the impact the arts can have on a community in reverse, just have a look at Midtown Manhattan when all her performing arts venues have had to shut their doors. Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, says the Save Our Stages Act would prevent venues around the Capital District from closing with a new $10 billion in Small Business Administration program. Provides up to $12 million of grants for venue operators. So they'll get the money that can be used very flexibly. It's not a loan, it's a grant. And it can be used very, very flexibly for payroll, for rent, for utilities, and PPE. If the venues remain closed, these places have real trouble. Just the Palace Theater alone loses $9 million in ticket sales. $9 million. How are they going to replace that to pay their workers and do everything else? Independent venues provide 75% of all artists' income here in the Capital Region but they drive economic activity. When people come to the palace, they go to the restaurants, they shop at the stores, they stay at the hotels because many come from out of town. Miller says the arts economy has been turned on its head. I recently heard from one of my favorite musicians, a member of our Albany Symphony. She said, most of us in the symphony are attempting to survive on less than $200 of unemployment a week. The fear of not being able to make rent or a mortgage payment, or afford groceries, or health insurance is very real. There's a shared fear that by the time theaters can safely reopen, we will have had to change careers in order to meet our basic needs. We are so eager to share our music with our audience once again, but that will only be possible if our financial survival is secured until it is possible to do so. Schumer vowed to continue the fight to include federal funding for independent venues in COVID-19 relief legislation. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. Meanwhile, a new poll finds New Yorkers are not optimistic about the fall, with the overwhelming majority saying they expect another COVID-19 outbreak in the coming months. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt reports. 
The rate of transmission of the virus in New York has been under 1 percent for over three weeks, but that has not calmed fears, according to the survey. Eighty-six percent of those polled by the Siena College Research Institute are bracing for another wave of the coronavirus this fall and winter. Siena's Don Levy says nearly two-thirds say they are not comfortable with schools and colleges and universities fully reopening this fall, and many are worried even about partial reopening. By no means does the general public feel as though we've gotten this under control. In no way is this something that we can speak about in the past tense. And I think there's tremendous trepidation about opening the schools, K-12, and or colleges, and what impact that's going to have on not only the kids, but everybody associated with the schools and the communities in which they're nested. Many New Yorkers say they are unlikely to engage in a lot of indoor activities as the weather cools. Over half say they are wary of eating indoors at a restaurant, having a drink at a bar, watching a movie in a theater, working out in the gym, or going bowling. And 80 percent remain concerned that they or a family member will become ill. Levy says there is some positive news in the survey, though. 51 percent say they have reconnected with family members or friends. 41 percent have begun a new hobby, and 43 percent completed a home improvement project, and some have adopted a pet. But more say they've gained weight than have lost weight since the pandemic began. Nearly one quarter say they are drinking more alcohol than they did before the shutdown. And that's especially true amongst um, New Yorkers between the ages of 35 and 49, um, where almost 40 percent of that group say that they've been drinking more alcohol than usual during the pandemic. So that might be one to, to stay on top of. Despite the worries and hardships related to the pandemic, the majority believe safety precautions are more important right now than fully reopening the economy. And three quarters of those surveyed say they wear a mask when they're out in public. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok. Very interesting discussion, program worth listening to at WAMC.org. With E.J. McMahon for your Capital Connection program this week, he is an analyst for the Manhattan Institute, takes a look at specifically economic issues and spending. And boy, do we have an economic problem in New York with a projected $17 billion deficit this year, another $19 billion in the next two years on top. The issue is how the governor handled this in terms of the spending and the budget. And he argues in a very specific timeline of when we knew about the virus, when the stock market got hit, and much of it before the final budget was passed for the April 1st deadline, he thought perhaps the governor could have gone further to institute cuts earlier. Well, E.J. McMahon is a brilliant analyst, and I thought in this conversation, which I hope everybody will listen to by going to wamc.org 
and you won't be able to listen to it just once. You'll have to listen to it. If you really care about state politics and finance, then you have to listen to it more than once because he is so specific. You know, in the old days, you could pretty well count on him to be taking a very conservative view of spending in the state. But in this conversation, I detected something a little bit different. I thought that he really was able to lay out what some of the problems were, and I think in some way, benign or not, to associate himself with the problems that the governor has been facing. The one thing that came out for me out of this discussion is the idea that the legislature has basically laid down and said to the governor, do whatever you want. We'll give you a budget. We'll say, just to keep it nice, that if you make major changes, you have to come back to us. But they're showing nothing but fealty to give the governor what he wants. And, you know, the governor has done a very credible job in leading the state. There's no question about it. Nevertheless, the governor has put all his marbles onto one single proposition, and that is that the feds would make this state whole again by giving them the money that they needed. And he has refused to entertain the idea that something else may happen. Well, now it looks like something else may indeed happen. The state is not going to get the money, at least not yet, for its billions. We don't know whether it's 14 billion, 16 billion, 17 billion. We don't know. We know that the MTA itself has got similar problems with similar numbers. So the governor obviously had to keep on saying, which he did, the feds have to give the money, otherwise we're in deep, deep trouble. But at the same time, refused to say, okay, and I asked him this several times, so what if that doesn't work? Do you have a plan B? And he refused to say that he had a plan B because if he did, it would negate his argument about what he was doing with the president and giving the money to the state of New York and to other states also. Therefore, it is a terrible time. If you were the governor, what would you do? Would you say that the schools in the state, which were already struggling, had to take a 20% cut? That's what it's going to be. 20%. Teachers will be fired. Teachers will not be rehired. Classes will be stacked full of kids. What are you going to do? This is a horrible situation. It's a bad time to be a governor. Well, and as part of that, the 20%, the governor has been holding chunks back, and the schools are trying to make these plans with 20% cuts. We've already seen a number of layoffs in that regard. The issue, and even E.J. McMahon brought this up, Alan, is that when you, in a pandemic, cut school aid, where school is not distributed equally, I think we know that based on the various districts and the tax base, you hurt those that have the least. And that would be the case now in a pandemic as we lose teachers and all sorts of personnel for underprivileged school children. Well, yes, we do know that this one thing that the pandemic shows, as everything else shows, is that the people who get hurt the worst are the people who have the least. People of color, for example, suffer greater because they have to go to work in so many ways. They have low-paying jobs, but jobs in which you have to be there. And so the pandemic shows it. The basic statistics of employment show it. And people of color will always, in this society at least for now, be at the bottom of the heap. By disclosure, my wife is a school psychologist in the Albany school system. She is safe from the cuts, but 
the meeting that was held this week, I got to take a look a little bit at it for about an hour. And Assemblywoman Pat Fahey came on the meeting and talked about this, Alan, the idea that as the schools make plans to cut 20%, she was working on, and it looked like, had a deal to make sure that the public school payment that goes to charter schools would also be relieved from the public schools. In other words, they'd still have to pay that money to the charter schools, even though they got cut 20%. Well, look, nobody's going to be immune, David, from this. Everybody's going to get hurt. There will always be arguments in terms of the distribution of public monies, whether or not this is a time when people who start charter schools as an alternative to public schools ought to get the same amount of money that the public schools get. When the state was relatively flush, yes. The answer was yes. We want to encourage this kind of diversity, this kind of new thinking. And a lot of people of color, by the way, send their children to charter schools. So it's not as if this is just a place of white privilege. It isn't. Nevertheless, decisions have to be made when things get really tough. Can we afford to keep doing this? Apparently, the answer is yes. Finally, a new poll this week. Alan, Siena College, Siena Research Institute finds New Yorkers are not optimistic about the fall. The overwhelming majority say they expect another COVID-19 outbreak in the coming months. And we know from the experts that this is certainly possible and we could see things closing down again. And in fact, we've seen it. We have seen when kids go back to school or go to bars or infect each other that the results could be catastrophic. It isn't as if it's going away. It isn't. There's still a lot of people dying from this disease. It may not be as bad as it in the beginning in some places, but in others it is. And anybody who doesn't prepare for the worst and then celebrate if it's better than the worst is just foolish. We have learned that this time. Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Parents across New York have been chiming in on virtual forums held by elected officials in recent weeks with their back-to-school concerns. They wonder why school reopening varies from district to district or even within the same district. And there's anxiety about how parents will address overseeing their children's education virtually if they have to go to work in person. In the Hudson Valley, Republican Dutchess County Executive Mark Molinaro spoke with the Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn about what he's been hearing from parents and others grappling with these issues. That's the Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn speaking with Dutchess County Executive Republican Mark Molinaro. 
York would have benefited, I think, from greater uniformity in public education and, and that lack of uniformity, um, and, and, and certainly, understandably so, has left uh, so many families uh, scrambling for uh, both a clear understanding of what their Ed, you know the kids' education is going to look like these next several months, and what to do in order to balance uh, their jobs and employment needs uh, with uh, being good parents. Dutchess County did not and does not want parents having to choose desperately between their children uh, and uh, their employment. He says Dutchess County is offering more than one hundred ninety-seven thousand dollars for a COVID nineteen childcare relief scholarship to benefit eligible families as a way to help solve this dilemma. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo announced in early August that schools across the state could reopen. Prior to the announcement, districts had to submit plans for state approval. Plans had to address three possible scenarios, a full in-person return, all remote, and a hybrid of both. You know, I accept that there there was that, that the state entered into this with the best of intentions, um, but it it was and is a mistake, and 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 it is a failing, and and it's not even that um, you have a scenario where you know people are going off to work in one region, uh, and and they have a, a set of standards for their school districts different than the other. Uh, they certainly you can you have uh, school districts that have it, their own basic expectations, and then because of the lack of uniformity, you even have within one's own family, uh, different expectations from uh, K-5 to 6A to uh, 9, uh, 12 uh, grades. And, and that has just created a lot of um, you know, difficulty. I won't say chaos. Everyone's trying. But there's a lot of difficulty in managing the school, the students, the, the, the faculty, the family, the economy. None of that has produced um, uh, you know, a, a sense of, of confidence or any, any degree of uniformity. And, and that is... It's chaotic at best, and you know. Again, I I, I think uniformity in, in in offering public education is you know is is the most uh, you know appropriate, um, and and I think it is a failing that the state didn't take it uh, that way. And quite frankly, I I think we're going to be reeling from this um, for quite some time. That that lack of direction and willingness to kind of uh, coordinate. Uh, all uh, public education statewide, and again, with some consideration region, big cities versus uh, the rest of us, so to speak, um, makes sense. But that is going to cause chaos right through uh, into next year because there isn't some moment in time, October, for instance, that suddenly things are going to change. And, um, you know, I think the state would benefit from from taking a more uh, involved uh, and responsible leadership role in that. What is your sense in Dutchess County about uh, school reopenings and how many districts might be postponing? Because I know some um, across the region have jumped in last minute and said, you know what, we're going to hold off for a few weeks or do September online. What's yeah. going on in Dutchess? I know you've got a lot of districts. We do. In fact, we have strangely, I, I, think, I think, among the most per capita of any county outside of <laughs> downstate. There's some weird status that we have. But anyway, um, oh, first, we took the approach uh, that we would advise and give guidance to our school districts give, in the hope that we could craft some basic uniformity that was limited but still give basic guidance. So we established a rapid response team uh, to work instantly on positive cases. Uh, we coordinate with our districts on contact tracing, both uh, providing them the tools and having the staff uh, ready. And uh, we were able to secure preferred uh, uh, status for rapid testing in one of our local providers. So instantly uh, schools would, would be able to schedule an appointment for an individual 
individual to be tested um, if there was a concern. We did all of those things by also and also giving them guidance, uh, the steps they should take, things they may or may not want to do in order to provide for public health and safety in the in the districts. Most of our school districts have decided to postpone in-person uh, uh, education until October. I will tell you what I told school superintendents. I don't know what happens in October that would suddenly make people feel better. It would seem to us the psychology of flu season, allergies, and coronavirus would likely make it uh, less likely schools would reopen in October. Uh, we do have some that are starting uh, for, um, hybrid in-person uh, classes. That is obviously necessary in order to be safe, but also very chaotic. Uh, we're providing some assistance there. Uh, but most of our schools have decided to postpone uh, in-person education uh, until uh, October. And again, I just don't see that some magic thing happens in October that makes people feel better. Uh, I think, in fact, we're going to have new complications in October uh, that uh, will cause even more um, uh, of a chaotic situation. I asked this because I was recently tuned into Orange County Executive Steve Newhouse's Back to School Safety Facebook Live forum. Uh, yeah. And he mentioned he's keeping his kids home uh, because his wife is home and able to oversee that process while the health commissioner is sending her three kids to school. So, you know, real divergence. And I ask you personally what, what you're doing about your kids. Well, I have four. So we have we run the gamut from high school to preschool. Uh, we decided not to send our youngest to daycare only because, frankly, we can provide that at home and wanted to make sure there were slots available to others who, who would have a more difficult uh, time with that. Uh, uh, Red Hook schools are currently uh, doing uh, virtual until October, uh, but uh, we've chosen uh, when they uh, are permitted to go back to, to school classes uh, to, uh, to see our two oldest uh, go off to in-person uh, education, but that's just not an option uh, at the moment in Red Hook. Mark Molinaro is Dutchess County Executive. Several schools in Dutchess reopen later this week, most, as Molinaro said, with remote learning. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Complete count committee members from across the North Country met at the United Way in Plattsburgh this week to urge people to complete their U.S. Census form. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with more. The Adirondack region, like most areas across the country, relies on federal funds for grants and programs. Many of the initiatives receive money based on their population. The 2020 U.S. Census ends on September 30th, one month earlier than originally planned. United Way Executive Director John Bernardi says that makes it more urgent for people to complete their census form. It's very important that we have a complete count because it has a direct impact on the quality of life in our region. It impacts funding for things such as schools and hospitals. It affects government representation. It can have an impact on grant opportunities and, and various other human service programs and the resources that 
are important to address numerous issues across the region. Bernardi adds that complete count committees were formed in Clinton, Essex, and Franklin counties in March to assure an accurate count across the North Country. These are comprised of county officials, nonprofit representatives, um, faith-based groups in some cases, and individual residents. And these committees have been strategizing and implementing um, those strategies in order to reach hard to serve and vulnerable populations across the region. Committee members were at the United Way to encourage people to self-respond or talk to census takers. Franklin County Economic Development Director Russ Kenyon says the census is more than feeding data to a federal agency. For each person that doesn't get counted, we lose a share of that federal funding and that representation that is so critical to our communities. And the more resources and representation we lose, the more that our locals are forced to bear and the, the costs that get passed on to our local residents. We also want to uh, remind people that have second homes or seasonal homes, which are uh, very common in, in the North Country here, that you would also uh, need to fill out the census for those addresses as well. Clinton County Planning Department Director Glenn Cutter noted there is short-term urgency because of the long-term implications. From 1990 to 2000, we lost the Air Force Base in Clinton County, so we lost about 10,000 people. That affected us quite a bit for potential economic development. Businesses looked at that and without paying much more attention, sometimes made a decision about whether they were going to move to Plattsburgh. So the population affects how businesses look at whether or not an area is growing or not and whether there's room for them to come in and see profit. So that's a big part of it as well. Democratic State Assemblyman D. Billy Jones represents the district. It touches every facet of our daily lives. Why wouldn't we take an extra couple of minutes and be counted and have our voices heard to take advantage of federal funding? Links for more information are at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2037. Or just listen or podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time. For more news on New York State government and politics, for the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustinum. <laughs>